Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 326, recording on Thursday, August 15, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill with Rebecca Shinsky coming to you from bookriot.com. The last time we we did a podcast, you and I, we were um, scrambling after a uh, <laughs> slapstick effort to use a community <laughs> podcasting space oh, here in Portland, yes. and then um, had to talk about, got to have the great privilege of talking about the Da Vinci Code movie book tandem for an hour plus and had a good old time. Oh, it doing was so it. much fun. Yeah, basically the the long story short is I wanted to try this um I'll leave the names out. Uh, a community podcasting place here in Portland had all set up. Rebecca and I was going to be in town. Let's go try it. I go get the key. We're getting ready to go and the key I snap off in the lock to the key. Mm. Uh much to my surprise and anyone who's ever you know seen my physique's surprise um that i could do such a thing and then we scrambled and went back to my house i'm putting blankets over tables i'm running out of power in the middle of the thing (laughs) then moving Um, the furniture (laughs) yeah and i think our first comment after that was since we had da vinci code on the mind was you know thousands of years of cryptexes and these things needing to work right and one key and one lock snapping off and the whole there, mm-hmm. There'd be nothing under any roses. There'd be no sacred fin- feminine. It'd all be lost in Istanbul or something somewhere because, you know, the Knight Templar Abe forgot where he put the key to the thing in the place or what the code word was to, you know, Isaac Newton's dog's name's favorite um, law of thermodynamics. Just just the improbability of uh, any such infosec <laughs> happening over the generations was brought uh, reliably uh, to bear on us in that moment. We got some very nice emails. Thank you guys for um, writing with the Da Vinci Codes. On the whole, people seem to like it. Um, some alternate casting things. One I already told Ooh. you, Rebecca, mm-hmm. I forward was Ethan Hawke, which I thought was interesting. You said too smart. You thought he read as too smart. I think he reads as like a little too smart, definitely too sexy for yeah. actual... Robert Langdon. He can rock that longer hair, though. Like, that's an Ethan Mark trademark. So at least that's we'd have true. that wouldn't be as much of a problem. I also wonder, he's considerably younger than Hanks, right? So when this movie came out, he also might have been too young at the time. I guess if you're recasting it or whatever, you, you could mess around mm-hmm. with it that way. But he does read it a little bit, as, a little too literary. There is something, he's maybe a little too cool. And that's one maybe I didn't articulate yeah, yeah, where yeah. Uh, with. Ray Fines, which I, you had suggested, and I was noodling, like, Langdon is a square. Fine, fine, Ray, Ray Fines is too cool. Ethan Hawke is too cool. Idris Elba, these are all too cool. Yeah. Hanks is the right level of dad <laughs> to get the job done here. Um, but it, yeah, it just Langdon, doesn't work. We did talk about how Robert Langdon doesn't have much edge, and Tom Hanks yeah. in the role has zero edge, but I think... Hawk has too much edge. Yeah. Um, Ray Fiennes was considered for casting, but yeah, too much edge too much on edge. him also. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a lot of suggestions about other movies to do in the fullness of time. Uh, as I said to the people who wrote in, most of them have at least one or two things on their list we've actively thought about. I wouldn't mind other suggestions. Mm. Um, podcast at bookriot.com. We were talking about a couple of things that have anniversaries this year, a couple personal favorites. One I was wondering about, too, I was watching the trailer for Where Do You Go, Bernadette, the other day, because it's mm-hmm. coming out this weekend. And I wonder what the right time horizon, like you want to do not just a, you saw it yesterday, recommended to people kind of a show, but like, what's the timeline if people want to hear us talk about, like, because I think we'd like to talk about that movie. We love that book. It'd be interesting to talk about that particular movie. Mm-hmm. Probably wouldn't want to do it the week it comes out, even assuming we wouldn't saw it because people wouldn't have seen it already. Is it sort of a if it's on Netflix kind of a situation, is that long enough? Or do you need like 
a 10-year moratorium. We don't want to do any of these until they've been out for 10 years. We've decided if it's even worth talking or, about that much. like, is it sooner? Is it like if the movie's been out for a month? Right. Or I have the same question about new releases. Like one of yes. the other kinds of bonus shows we've been thinking about doing is highly anticipated new releases, reading them and doing a kind of like, is it worth all the buzz? What's this book all about? Mm-hmm. And so like an example of one we've been talking about is the new Margaret Atwood book coming out in September called The Testaments. It's the follow-up to The Handmaid's Tale. Like if we were to do that, how much time would you would you as listeners right. want? After, like I think it comes out on September 11th. Mm. Um, it's either the 11th or the 18th. Is a would should we talk about it a week later? Should we talk about it a month later? Like, what's the right zone there for it being fun, but also useful if you're deciding if you're going to read the book or not? Yeah, maybe it's kind of a two segment situation where you do like a ten or twelve minute segment where we just sort of give this spoiler free kind of mo- more of a review slash reading recommendation mm-hmm. talk, and then you come back to it, or if you want to come back to it when it comes out in paperback and say, okay, it's been out for now for a while. If you've really hot and bothered to read it, you've had a chance, and then you really kind of dive into it. Because that's, I think that's one of the difficult things about any kind of book club or book discussion-oriented podcast or really any kind of editorial product is, is it for the people who have read it or haven't? And the answer is always both, right? Mm-hmm. You know, people always want to do <laughs> for both. Like a New York Times book review, that's clearly meant for people who haven't read it yet, which tends to be most people, but... There's also something to be said for a longer, interesting, in-depth conversation that's not just a reading recommendation. That's like, is this good or bad, but what's interesting, and talking about the various pieces. I think we're both interested in trying something like that as well. I mean, I guess that the real answer is there's plenty of books that have been out for long enough that we don't have to worry about. Has people who have wanted to read it read it already? Like maybe we do the, the Atwood 20 minutes, here's what it is, and then we just move on to something that everyone's read. You know, I don't know. It's interesting. Let us know. We want, we would like to make stuff you guys would be interested in. Um, presumably if we're going to do a long in-depth conversation about something, we'll certainly give you warning as much as we can. Um, so anyway, I guess the, the one that struck me as a, as a recent movie adaptation that's like, huh, this is interesting is crazy rich Asians because it mm-hmm. did have a moment and it's kind of like, I know there are other books coming out. I think there are other movies coming. Yeah, there But are. it was a big cultural conversation. And now it's long enough after that you can kind of have a conversation after it without having it be about the conversation, about the thing, which I kind of find uh, a, a nice and interesting moment. So maybe there's some sort of nice yeah. di- valley of, uh, a, I don't know, so, so some sort of valley of um, engagement that you can get to before it's too old, but also before it's like all the hot takes are out. Valley of engagement. That one also happens to be one of my personal rewatchables. I've seen that mm. movie probably 15 times now. That's right. Thanks to Cable and the Delta Studio. Oh, the, what's the Delta Studio? The, the t- Oh, the planes? Delta In-Flight. Yeah, oh. it's been Crazy Rich Asians has been on Delta In-Flight viewing for like a year and a half. Wow, really? <laughs> mm-hmm. And huh. it's become like I get on a plane, I watch like on cross-country flights, I watch something that's like 90 minutes. Like I watched When Harry Met <laughs> Sally and then I either watch the first hour of a star is born right. or as much of crazy rich Asians you as can I can get, get through. through. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so anyway, um, also, even if you don't want us to talk about it, I'd love to know what your favorite book to movie adaptation is. I just like to know, um, podcast.com. Yeah. Favorites. And also just more, most interesting. Like they don't mm. necessarily have to be great adaptations to make for interesting conversation. That's I think true. as the Da Vinci Code illustrates. Yeah. yeah. I think we had a couple people write in to say they like the, the segment. They're looking forward to another ones. But since we were so, we had some recency bias in terms of uh, weighting our talk about the Da Vinci Code property towards how much the movie was, mm. you know, a rickety structure, let's put it that way, that we didn't get to talk until much later and not as long really about what we do like about the Da Vinci Code. So I think that one note is really, I, I took that one to heart because I really don't want to talk mm-hmm. about how I don't like things. Like none oh, of yeah. us find that very interesting, Mm-mm. but some of it was we had wa- we had just watched the movie um, and we're sort of caught by like, oh yeah, there's some weird crap about this particular Yeah, and I, when we planned the show, I did not remember that I didn't like the movie very much, or at least I didn't, I wasn't anticipating that I wouldn't like the movie very much. The first time I saw it, I don't think I had that same reaction. So that was a surprise. Mm -hmm. Good. That's useful feedback. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. We don't want to talk about bad. We don't, we don't, we're not mystery science 3000ing 
this. That's yeah, not no. what we're trying to do here at all. Okay, let's do our next sponsor. And then uh, I got, you know, I was out last week and something happened last week that's uh, relevant to our interests here. So here we go. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out the Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. I, I was both... Very sad and relieved not to have been on last week's show. There were, we almost cried. We did not quite. Yeah. Um, I definitely cried while texting you two words. <laughs> well, and I didn't tell you, I didn't know anything at that point. I was back in Kansas, you know, doing family things, not on the internet really at all. And as soon as you texted, I'm like, oh, I said, Michelle, oh, yeah. Rebecca oh. Shinsky just texted me, Tony Morrison, and I know what that means i went and looked just to be sure mm-hmm. um i oh. hoped that it might have been a new book announcement like i was like for like five seconds i was like there's like a two percent chance this is good news but a 98 percent chance this is bad news yeah i kind of uh, amanda texted me i hadn't made it to the internet yet when the news broke and i was glad that i got the news from her so i was hoping you would get the yeah, news from I do me appreciate and not that. the internet <laughs> and then you know a couple of you know all this stuff is personal but um, friends and family, I mean, they know what I do, but also I think most of them know that Morrison is not just influential and of grand scale, but personally very meaningful to me. A lot of texts and Facebook messages um, mm-hmm. from, a, I'd, I'd say, the two levels deeper than I would have expected about, um, you know, really not saying much, just like some of the links that Tony Morrison died, I guess, thinking maybe I hadn't heard, not realizing that this is like lightning speed news right. uh, in my particular world. But I found that very interesting in the world of art writing, literary fiction, no other name would have elicited such a response. People wouldn't have known, I think, even to text me about it. Um, and again, I'm I'm being very specific here. If it's Stephen King, J.K. Rowling, someone like that, that's a different... Those are pop culture figures. And Morrison really isn't. Is that fair? I mean, is it fair to say she's not or on the cusp of a pop yeah, culture been, figure? I've been trying to think about the best way to capture that also because I the work certainly doesn't exist in the realm of pop culture. No. The reading of those books is not a pop culture experience. She didn't engage on social media. There's not like a Toni Morrison sort of entertainment presence Mm-mm. in the world. But there are some just viral quotable yes. 
portions of the book and then also of talks that she's given um, and also selections from The Source of Self-Regard, which is a um, very beautiful, recent collection of essays and speeches and meditations of hers. And those, I think those have saturated pop culture, like the interesting things that happened to me in the wake of her passing were some of the same things you're talking about. Lots of messages from people from various points in my life um, about, Oh, I thought of you when I saw Mm. this Toni Morrison, but then also I noticed like my Instagram feed was filled with tributes to her work from from book people who loved it, but also just beautiful images with Toni Morrison quotes over them from people Mm. that aren't affiliated with the book world at all. Or like my yoga friends who aren't big readers for the most part, um, at least my personal yoga friends, not that yoga people don't read books. Um, But it it seems like her, her, some of her ideas and the very powerful way she had of concisely stating big ideas have gone out into a pop culture moment of some sort. I've been really, I I had this like, Oh, I didn't have any idea that this person was aware of Toni Morrison. Um, It seems like just different strata of connection to her. Yeah. It seems like a similar thing happened when Maya Angelou died as well, Mm -hmm. that, if if Morrison, I think Maya Angelou probably even had more of a pop culture presence. I would say so. Yeah. You know, I know why the Cage Bird scene broke through to be like a you know a perennial book club affirmational kind of of read, and so in the poetry and things like that. And Morrison seemed to, in the public consciousness, kind of hold a similar space, which. You know, we could do a whole podcast about whether or not that's appropriate in the racial and gender and age mm-hmm. dynamics of what's going on there. Um, but I thought also, because that same thing happened in my Instagram feed as well, and even on my Facebook, and maybe I'm being protective, maybe this is my own, you know, one of the seven stages of literary grief, I don't know, but <laughs> I saw people using quotes from Morrison and being like, she wrote that, but it's, that's not what you think that's about. <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> you know, she, she is not a, she is not a new agey devotional, make you feel better about your safe kind of a sage person. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not, you know, Oprah's done very well. Not surprisingly, they're connected because of that. Oprah tried, I think to make whatever pop culture presence Toni Morrison has probably because of Oprah, but their modes of discourse are very different. And Morrison is a thorny, complicated figure. Like we didn't see anyone quoting that Mm -hmm. Morrison, you know, intentionally does not consider or did not consider herself a feminist um, for reasons that I think are probably more interesting than the garden variety way of saying those things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think people, the kinds of people in the large part who were using a Morrison quote and those, those beautiful ones with black backgrounds and her dreads and her profile. And, you know, if there's not a book, you know, we all know the ones we were seeing. Do those people understand the complexity of the Morrison? Pro- it's a thorny project. And I, um, Michelle sent probably the favorite thing I've seen about Morrison so far. And I haven't done too much cause I'm not really ready for but apparently she and Fran Lebowitz were really good friends. Oh, it's such a good piece. It's a really nice piece. And Lebowitz said, and I agree with her, that Morrison is weirdly underrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a thousand percent true. I think for a lot of the reasons I just said, she doesn't get the credit for complexity, difficulty, and rigor um, that if she were maybe a white man or whatever else it might be, I don't know if she's David Foster Wallace gets this sort of credit. Um, I think, mm-hmm. and Morrison has her public persona has morphed into more of the sage kind of personality, a, you know, a living Yoda kind of visage, which I don't think is right. And I think does a disservice to the work. And I think people would be surprised, um, if they go back and do her own reading and then read the back catalog and read stuff. I mean, beloved is not a simple work. That is not a book you read to feel better about yourself or the universe or get you through the day. That is a book that troubles you and it is troubling, um, in fundamental ways. And that kind of troublingness of Morrison hasn't been present so far. And I find that very interesting. I guess what I'm trying to say. It's, it is really interesting. And this is, I think one of those cases where the characters in her work, yeah, have so much wisdom and the stories do convey, you know, 
important concepts about life, like in um, Song of Solomon, probably the most common quote I've seen circulating in the last week is the, you want to fly, you got to give up the shit that weighs you down. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes from song of Solomon. Like these are all, these are wise things to say, or like thin love ain't love at all. Um, this is a wise thing to say. There's a quote from uh, later in beloved where Paul D is talking about Setha and says like, she was a friend of my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but the context in which those characters say those <laughs> things is not, it's not like new agey. It's not warm and feel good. There are like very rarely warm feel good moments in Toni Morrison novels and the divide between sort of the wisdom that the characters come to and how they get there. And then the way that that wisdom gets like pulled out as as pull quotes and decontextualized into social sharing, Mm -hmm. especially um, is really fascinating. I I think they just take on different. Yeah, they've taken on different meanings, like, you know, giving up stuff that weighs you down. Yes, to that idea. But that idea out of the source it comes from and Toni Morrison is a completely different that's a completely different beast yeah and I'm it, it must happen to all public figures who have any kind of complexity or any you know substantial body of work I guess like I said maybe it's me being possessive me feeling like you know one way I'm dealing with this is to say I understand Morrison better than other people and that's probably not fair um Though that's what I'm fe- that's what I'm feeling right now here at the end is like yeah. the 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 credit for the complexity, the the extreme artistic innovation experimentation that doesn't lend itself to the kinds of like public eulogizing that we do on the internet now. Um, I found that less than satisfying, but I don't know what I wanted. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I wanted the big, the big Fran Lebowitz piece. I'm sure there's mm-hmm. other going to be things coming out there. The obituaries were fine. I mean, I, I didn't find any in particularly moving. You know, it's one of those things too, where she, she wanted, you know, another thing Fran Lebowitz said that in my own, I've had very limited personal experience with Morrison, um, but I've heard some other people too is she wanted people to be uncomfortable around her. She she wasn't, or let's put it this way, she wasn't interested in making people comfortable, even on a personal level, mm-hmm. and certainly in the art. Um, and I, I hope that in time, I, I'm sure in time, we'll remember again um, the discomforting nature of what she was trying to do. Um, I thought a lot of the stuff, I, I saw a lot more, I'm so glad to see this, a lot more recognition of her role in editing other Mm. authors, you know, Gail Jones and others in her time at Random House. Um, I was very glad to see that that was noted as part of her legacy um, as well. But again, I haven't been looking for it. Um, I'm sure there are long pieces coming. I haven't seen, I hoped I would see a whisper of someone saying someone so-and-so is working on the long biography, but I didn't see it. Did you? No, I haven't seen that yet. There was a piece on BuzzFeed um, by Hanif Abdurraqib about Morrison's like lifelong career long generosity to other black writers. Mm -hmm. That's um, I think that's worth reading for some of the things that you're talking about as well. Um, But I was thinking of um, that profile that Rachel Kadzi. Yes. What is her? um, It's she's three names and I should have Googled it. Um, But Gonza Mm -hmm. that she wrote a few years ago and I would dearly love her Morrison full length biography. Um, I think I've come to the place of, I hope that a ton of people who are inspired by the Toni Morrison quotes floating around on the internet go pick up the books that those quotes come from and have experiences that are surprisingly difficult and yeah. bring and that bring surprising depth and a really rich reading experience and a rich challenge. The other way I've been dealing with it, um, in addition to just reading some old Morrison, I haven't had the temerity to to dive into the novels. Um is a lot of the obituaries said, or, you know, the headlines were greatest living American novelist, greatest Mm. living American writer. And since she's passed, that title is, for my lifetime, it hasn't been in dispute, as Mm. as far as I know. And I started thinking about now, and this is a longer conversation, but I started thinking about it. and, And surprisingly, I guess this is a tease for some future discussion, it wasn't that hard. I, I it, once I started thinking about it, a name came to mind, and I started matching against other people. And again, this is my limited reading experience. I'm keeping it to fiction right now. I, I don't know enough about p- 
poetry really to say that the 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 queen of all who the queen of all words are right now <laughs> um but for me after thinking about it I, I have a name in mind and i i can't i can't um really not as set for me it's not even close there's not even really a close second place um interesting someone who shares a lot i mean it's follows in Morrison's footsteps in a lot of ways and diverges in some other ways, but um, too soon, really. I'm sure we're going to start to see those pieces. Mm-hmm, that's um, speculation. I'll be curious to see if my sense of it is at all um, replicated elsewhere. Um, I will be prying that information out of you yeah, as soon after as we the, finish after this show. recording. Yeah. Have you thought about that at all? Did you <laughs> a think little about, bit. Yeah. Um, not. I haven't given it, uh, yeah. it... I don't think I've given it the length of thought that it sounds like you've... Yeah, well, I was in but, Kansas, um, so I had some time just kind of wandering around <laughs> and not, you know, not doing internet, not being caught in the, the yeah, moment of the internet. I've stuff. been, I have been reading everything that I can find about her. I think my way of processing it has been to read all of the obituaries and all of the pieces and tributes and stories mm-hmm. and trying to like just give me a little bit more. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a good transition. I'm going to skip down just a moment here. Um, Barack Obama had a very nice message about Morrison. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to always be mystified. This always happens on Facebook. We don't need to rehash this whole discussion we have every time, <laughs> except to mention it, to note for the record, my, the continu- my continued mystification. They um, did promote it this. on Instagram this time also. I had a oh, moment of really? like, oh, it's not just on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, was this the Morrison message or the um, summer reading the, list? The summer reading oh, list. Oh, that's we're going to get. Yeah, I was just noting, oh, okay. too, that he had a nice facebook message about morrison unsurprisingly a favorite writer uh of obama's so his summer reading list is out and a little more well inland by tia obrit not even out or just came out yesterday so he's getting galleys as we've long wondered Mm -hmm. and suspected but this is i think the first positive proof that his connection to the publishing industry is not just walking into a bookstore and picking crap out. I mean, we know that, but this is like actual, right. like textual and, evidence for that. Right. And Obrett is published by Penguin Random House, who uh, also has the Obama book deals. So even if he weren't getting galleys before, which I'm fully convinced <laughs> that he was, he's got an inside now. Yeah. Some backlist titles I thought were interesting mm-hmm. here as well. Notably Wolf Hall, Hillary Mantel's, I mean, without, you know, uh, unique is sometimes overused, but I've never read a book narrated quite like that book about the life Mm. of Thomas Cromwell's rise to power. That one came out 10 years ago. I think we're still waiting on the last of those books to come out. Yeah. And, you know, Obama was a little busy in 2000. As he says here, I thought that was really (laughs) funny, too. Um, Where else do you want to go? Uh, Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. Like that seems solidly yes. in the Obama wheelhouse, but also interesting for being a little more uh, socially difficult mm-hmm. and about challenging social issues than some of his picks are. Um, I think Exhalation by Ted Chang is only the second time we've seen a sci fi fantasy title on mm. one of these lists. Uh, the contributors on our Book Right Contributor Slack were chewing over that and the other one was the three body problem came Mm. up a few years ago um american spy by lauren wilkinson which i haven't gotten to yet but i understand people love and i think it's interesting to see like a thriller yeah two genres two genre pieces here i recommended i think american spy in one of our i think our our uh, mom's dad's grad's recommendation Mm -hmm. show it's a really great book i'm glad to see it getting uh, plugged here one of our shared wheelhouse favorites lab girl by hope jaren Nice to see that he's doing a lot of backlist. That's like three years old now because I remember writing mm-hmm. the book, the blurb for that for our best of blah, 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 years oh, yeah. ago. Um, and I think that's been three or four years that when I actually wrote things uh, for this site mm-hmm. from time to time. Made by Stephanie Land, single mother's personal unflinching look at America's class divide. I've heard some mixed reviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've also um, heard mixed about reviews that. of that. Um, Dina Magestu's novel, How to Read the Air, also backlist, came out a few years ago. Also a really interesting book. The Shallows by Nicholas Carr, also backlist. Haruki Murakami's Men Without Women is backlist. Fascinating how many back... I think this is more backlist, and deep backlist is strong, Mm -hmm. but several years old backlist. um, Yeah. in 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 that valley of engagement between something being new and being like a modern classic, a lot of these are falling into that that period about we don't know if these are going to be things people read in 20 years so it's interesting to see them popping up here 
Yeah, I am shipping the notion that he bought those backlist books over the last like 10 years and they've been sitting in a stack somewhere and that he was like, what am I going to read this summer? Oh, you know, I've been meaning to get to Wolf Hall, Mm. been meaning to get to Lab Girl because and like Wolf Hall, Lab Girl, also The Shallows. Those were all big titles when they came out. And I wouldn't be surprised if they had been on his radar. So I am just believing that Obama's got a TBR pile. (laughs) A TBR closet, a TBR bunker, some sort of TBR panic room (laughs) um, where he can get in there. I'm sure he's wanting to do a little more. You know that that if he has a panic room, it has books in it. It definitely does, as as probably is reasonable for. You're going to be in there a while. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. What are the standard features of a panic room? Are there bathrooms? Do you have a toilet? I don't know. Oh, do you have plumbing? Do you have food? I'm, hmm. Well, I think the panic room is ideally for short-term use so that mm. you get into it and you call the police and you're safe until the authorities arrive. So however long, however long mm-hmm. that, that is. But we could speculate about like the books that he might have kept in whatever the secure and undisclosed location is that mm. he would have been transported to in the event of an emergency. I wonder what the average burgle duration is for someone <laughs> in a panic room. How long are you in there? Like you get in there, the people do their thing and they get out, right? Like, the average burgle duration. Yeah. Um, they, I, I don't know. I, I never really thought about this before, but like, it's 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 not prepper stuff. I guess I guess you could multi-purpose Correct. your prepper basement, sub basement, or whatever you're using mm-hmm. for for a panic. Room. Well, definitely the book version of a prepper basement is a TBR. <sighs> yeah, that's definitely true. You might as well. Maybe some New Yorkers is long enough. You know, you could read a, you could read a long Emily Nussbaum review of a TV show mm-hmm. while people are boosting your mother's jewels. Um, <laughs> all right. So yeah, there. I mean, I guess a little, a little variation on what we've come to understand these Obama reading lists to be is that we're backlist. Mm-hmm. Front the only well, there's supra frontlist in terms of reading something advanced copy, the Inland by Obra, and then the only other, I guess, Exhalation is that the new one? Yeah, Exhalation. That's new. the new Chang, and then the Nickel Boys. Um, and maybe he's new. saving more of the front list for his, you know, best books of 2019 declaration. Let me throw this at you. Anything you're surprised from this year not to see on the list? Oh, man, I have not been paying good attention. Um, I want him to read Daisy Jones and the Six Mm. because I just want to know about Obama's take on that. No Um, Where the Crawdads Sing on here, notably. No um, (laughs) Bob Woodward's Trump book. No Trump stuff on here, Uh, not surprisingly. I feel like when you get all the briefs, you probably don't need yeah. the Trump book. Yeah. yeah, I'll have to consider if there's anything that I feel like is a glaring, a glaring absence mm-hmm. or at least surprising. Hmm. The last one of these got was at the end of last year, right? Because remember, we, we noted cagely that a Becoming, of course, was on there. But I oh, think that's the last one right. of these we saw, which means it was end of last year, the very beginning mm-hmm. of, uh, of the year. Um was there there the Tommy Orange on the last one? That was the one I was wondering. I think that he has. T- I think that he mentioned okay. there there in a, on a list somewhere, but I don't remember mm-hmm. for sure. Okay. All right. Um, so there's Obama reading books like mm-hmm. we all would like to in our panic rooms after being president. <laughs> you know, as you know, one I does. Think Super a, relatable. Now that my brain is opening the storage drawers, I think that um, I would have. I wouldn't be surprised to see On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong uh, on an Obama list. That's maybe like the big literary novel of the year that mm. I would think would have made its way to him or will make its way to him. I still am holding out. I want Obama to read a romance. Well, I mean, the genre door has been cracked. Um, he'll, I mean, there's he'd have to kick it a little harder than he's kicked it so far to get to I mean, a traditional, you mean like a traditional genre romance, not just a commercial, you know, these, like a, something that's marketed as a romance. Yeah, I I like a mass market paperback, yeah. Sarah McLean right. romance. Bev Jenkins, something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bev right. Jenkins or Jasmine Guillory mm-hmm. or Helen Wong. I have ideas. Call me, call me Barack. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Where do you want to go? Now we have bummer stories. 
I know we have so many bummer stories. Uh, yeah. Can we, can we put these two together? I mean, we'll say what we need to say, but let's, yeah, let's put sure. them together. From, uh, from the Department of Ongoing Things that we cover that we wish we did not have to cover, Florida um, is the next state that we are discovering has a strange, arbitrary policy about books that get banned from uh, it's through its Department of Corrections. Um, there's there are more than twenty thousand titles um, listed on the banned books list for the Florida Department of Corrections, and the like, sort of hairy thing about this rule is that they can turn the literature review committee reviews twice a month to screen books and magazines that are being sent to prisoners or that prisoners have requested. Um, it's subscriptions, it's book orders by prisoners, and it's contributions from Books to Prisoners, which is a program that we've talked about on this show and on that episode of Annotated that you produced about it. It's unclear who serves on the committee, mm. how many members are on the committee, and they don't have to really provide any information about why they're turning down a title other than like the broad the broad like blanket statement of they believe it would be disruptive um, or is inappropriate content. So like there are episodes, episodes, there are issues of like field and stream and readers digest that don't make it in. Mm. Um, there are also uh, things like memoir of a jailhouse lawyer, which is an account um, of a handwritten court brief that landed a cellmate, a Supreme court hearing um, black Klansman, which is uh, detective Ron Stallworth's story of going undercover to infiltrate the clan is banned, but also so is the Simpsons rainy day fun book. <laughs> the um, Florida prison censors allowed the Aryan nation catalog and the kidnapping and brainwashing of our Aryan children, but they turned down a coloring book called exotic chickens coloring forever. Everyone. I may know someone who has the non-coloring book version of Exotic Chickens. Of all the random books I've actually heard <laughs> of on this list, I've seen Exotic Chickens, the book. Probably, maybe uh -huh. some actual Exotic Chickens I wouldn't know. Not a chicken guy, as these things go. Um, the, you know, these, the, the particularity of these things became more or less and less interesting to me, this superstructure and patterns thing. I think we mm -hmm. talked about, probably the last time we talked about a book banning, the thing we were starting to notice was the sort of um, uh, defense by obscurity of who actually is doing what in relation yeah. to these bands. Like it's for a while, it was some parent whose name got dragged through the internet for saying they don't want their kids to read about something that their kid probably should be reading about anyway. Mm -hmm. And so that person got piled on and refuted and, you know, rightly so at, at least strong pushback here. It's, some Kafka-esque board of nameless, shadowy people who don't have to come out into the light to say things that I think, if you had to say them out loud, would sound to most people fairly ridiculous on, yes. on its face. Yeah, there's a note in the piece that many, like many of the prohibited materials do contain explicit sexual or violent content, but that often the officials take a premise that is a sound premise that's rooted in the idea, at least right. of trying to maintain order uh, in the prisons and they extend it to an illogical conclusion. Yes, that's right. But I would love to know, like, how do you even extend this premise to land you in a place where you're banning the exotic chickens? Ooh, right. book? It's like they slippery <laughs> slope themselves. Right. right. They took this idea and like, let's take it all the way down to the and exotic just, chicken's like, coloring book. How do you land in that place with, not, with no like grain of self-awareness that, yeah. okay, what am I doing banning an exotic chicken's coloring book? In all fairness, I think the exotic chicken's coloring book is how Andy Dufresne got out of Shawshank prison, if <laughs> I remember. That, that was the book he used. Hmm. Yeah. That's, um, well. that, that's so, maybe they're, maybe they're right about that. Well, but you know, the, the prisoners probably wouldn't know because the Shawshank Redemption is probably not. Probably not. Probably not. Or ironically, it maybe is, you know, that, yeah. would, be, that would be one, that would probably actually be more in line with the internal coherence of the logic that we're What about the Count with. of Monte Cristo since he escapes from prison? Yeah. Well, I mean, man both have to mask. do, yeah, both have the man, yeah, escaping from prison books. Um, jumping out of a castle into a water and swimming for a few miles probably in isn't. In a body bag. In a body bag. Yeah. That's a tough spot. <laughs> Um, the next story, um, I think, represents more of a trend than it, it. You know, it's important in itself, but I think is part of a trend of growing. It seems to me mm -hmm. pushback 
against mm-hmm. drag queen story hours and similar, you know, drag queen story hours we did for our episode of Annotated is a specific group. There's other things that take the same premise, basically, of um, drag queens reading in libraries, story times, you know, having events where they're in drag. Um, this one is 100,000 Christians have signed a petition to the American Library Association protesting against its support of Drag Queen Story Hour, but the ALA um, has said it strongly opposes any effort to limit access to information, ideas, and programs that patrons wish to explore. This is a part two where they kind of say the quiet par loud for those of mm-hmm. us who are on you know a different political spectrum says in in part of um, uh, says you know. Uh, Teaching teen boys, the petition says this teaches teen boys how to be drag queens. It's like, that sounds cool. That, 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and they say they present unabashedly queer role models. I'm like, that is yeah. cool um, and good. So this is some, one thing where they're not misreading and they know exactly what's happening here. Yeah. Right. Well, like that's so in some ways I prefer teen- that to the, whatever's going on with the chicken books, but I'm no less right. um, sad that this is happening. Yeah. I mean, I would dispute that drag queen story hour actually teaches people how to become drag right. queens, but those teenagers, if they wish to know, they don't need to go to drag queen story hour. They have access to the internet um, and can figure it out. I love this from the ALA, this support. And I, think this also goes to like it's important to point out that like the drag queen story hour people are not petitioning libraries that also allow christian book clubs to hold meetings Mm -hmm. in them like the ala would i think have the same response to that that our spaces are open to members of the public if some of the members of the public are christians and wish to get together and use our first come first serve meeting rooms for a christian book club they're welcome to do so like this policy goes both ways but the ala here is acknowledging that like queer people are part of public life queer issues are part of public life providing space for members of the queer community and people who are interested in elements of queer culture to experience and explore those elements through a public resource like the public Mm -hmm. library like is part of the deal and these I think petitions like this are growing out of not just a Christian objection to drag queens or to queer culture or to the use of public spaces for things that Christians, that some Christians find to be offensive, but a real resistance to the current reality and of Mm. how progressive public life is becoming and that public life is more open and expansive and more welcoming um, than it's been. And certainly we have a long way to go, but I think we're just going to continue to see this. Like when it's not drag queen story hour, it's going to be something else um, that is objectionable because it opens up possibilities for identity and exploration that members of certain communities wish to suppress. Right. And, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise that this is a front line in a larger cultural moment because it is in a public place mm-hmm. where people can contest it along lines that they can't contest it and say, um, as we said in the, in the episode, like nightlife in a bar. Like you're not right. going to protest this in a bar because it doesn't have the same impact and it doesn't really work the same way. But this is a real moment where if you are the kind of person that is worried about the queering of American life, the whatever else, you, whatever you want to call it, this is a really crystallized moment where you can try to do something about it. Like it feels like I can see how it feel like if I can't change what's happening in the culture, but I can get drag queens out of libraries. I can see how that becomes the locus for a lot of other anxiety. That's not really about drag queen story hour specifically, though I think it is specific to this, of course, but the hundred thousand petitions are like, they're looking for a place to put this kind of, Anxiety, And this is a ready-made place um, to put it. I think it also shows how important it is um, and how admirable it is for, the, for these readings and these events to still happen. Um, so far, we've seen some get canceled um, in some places. Each case is a little bit different, but it seems to be at the, at the beginning there was some pushback and then it kind of got overcome, and now there's second or third waves of resistance um, to this happening. I, I wonder if it gets to a point in, in the foreseeable future, at what point will it no longer be something people um, protest in a, in, you know, in a serious kind of way? 
because um, we're not out mm-hmm. of the woods on that yet. Yeah, there's a nice note in this piece, too, that the ALA offers resources to libraries that have received pushback over Drag Queen Story Hour, saying that it wants to create, quote, a more equitable, diverse and inclusive society, which includes a commitment to combating marginalization and underrepresentation within the communities served Mm -hmm. by libraries through increased understanding of the effects of historical exclusion. That's a lot of really important things in two sentences yes. <laughs> that the ALA stands for and has clearly defined itself as standing for. And I think we cannot like shout that from the rooftops enough and celebrate enough that the ALA is making this position very clear and continuing mm. to stand by it. Um, I I feel like great confidence in librarians as stewards of our public life um, and that these are the values being put forward by the ALA when there's a lot of social pressure and it would be easier in a lot of ways um, to give into it, um, I think is just really commendable. Yeah. Okay, let's do one more story and we'll, we'll make it a, make it a nice um, breezy summer uh, afternoon. I, I somehow missed that Salinger's work weren't available at eBooks. I did a post a while back a while back, like seven or eight years ago, <laughs> mm-hmm. about major books that weren't in the public domain, and, or not public domain, sorry, available electronically as e-books. Um, and uh, Catcher in the Rye was, I think, number one on my list. There was an, it doesn't matter. Oh, To Kill a Mockingbird wasn't available for a long time either. Anyway, here we are. Um, Salinger's complete corpus, um, because his son, Matt Salinger, has has said all right mm-hmm. it's time um it's 10 years um and i think to this point especially with the rise of audio if you're not on audio or ebook you're in great danger of being lost um yeah. catcher in the rye already i'm not sure it ages the best um that's a longer conversation too and i haven't read it in a while but i know it's one where people have come back to it of late you see it's of late come back to it and said hmm Mm-hmm. I wonder if this in the uh, longer horizon of time is going to be something people will still know, but you're not doing yourself any favors by making it print available to be print only in this day and age. Yeah. My only question is why now like that Salinger has been dead for almost a decade. His son has been a very, this piece notes like a very vigilant guardian of his legacy and his privacy, but it's also not news that eBooks are now a really Mm. stable part of the publishing ecosystem. 10 years ago when J.D. Salinger died, they weren't so necessary. Um, Audiobooks were certainly not as big of a deal as they are now, but it's interesting. I mean, presumably this deal has been going on for a little while, but it's curious to me um, that it took quite this long, I think. Well, Um, let me introduce you to a heuristic that we both will understand and probably agree (laughs) with. Is it when in doubt about why an estate is doing something, the answer is money. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yes, but like the presumably the money was appealing five years ago, right? Like there were books to be sold. Yeah, I don't know. These, I, I wonder if it has something to do too with we're supposed to get new writing. We're supposed to be getting new writing forever, but probably as they're banging out contracts with PRH, they're like, all right, if you don't do audio and ebooks, your advance is this, and if you do, your advance is Y. When if you've only been getting print royalties for the last sixty years, you may not even know what you're missing out on. You know, mm-hmm. it could be that looking at the line item in your um, contract, you're like, wait a minute, we're not on Audible and it's going to cost us how many dollars? And also my dad was the one that cared about privacy and I'm Matt and I like money. Um, let's do this. I, I don't know. I, I think it's probably a combination of the children don't care as much about this privacy as, as JD did because who could have since he seemed to care the most about it. Mm-hmm. Um and if the book is out of the public consciousness, that, that royalty train is going to come into the station and stop chugging along if you're not careful. Um, so you're right. why not then? I think it's, there's, no, there's no time <laughs> from the estate's <laughs> point of view to, to no cashing in is too early. Yeah. Um, so anyway, not sure if that's going to matter. Um, it's an interesting point when these new books come out to see I don't know that 20, are 20 year olds reading Catcher in the Rye, 15, 15 year olds reading Catcher in the Rye? Because it's kind of YA. I mean, it, it's not YA, but it filled the function that a lot of YA does now back then. Even when I was a kid, like you're a teenager mm-hmm. of a certain disposition, it felt like the book for you. It felt subversive in a way, like, you know, the perks of being a wallflower kind of does, and yet it's 
also literary and sort of snobby and yet approachable. Um, I just wonder if the terrain the Catcher in the Rye occupied then is otherwise occupied now. Yeah, I would doubt that a lot of teenagers are just, my just guess is that yeah. very few teenagers are just picking it up because it's the book that teenagers relate to. I, I do think that that moment mm-hmm. has passed, but given what we know about the sort of endurance of the selection high of school canonical syllabi, works yeah, right. and high school syllabi, I would think high schoolers are still reading this because they're being, they have to. I guess just though, even since I was in high school, the teachers, I, even, I don't know. I just wonder if, I know in some of the classrooms I'm familiar with, let me speak from personal experience, are picking much more contemporary work in the kinds of junior high, early high school classes where typically you would have encountered Catcher in the Rye. They're not Mm -hmm. picking 70-year-old books typically anymore. Um, I'd love to, this is where we need book scan. Mm -hmm. Like what what has been the sales curve of Catcher in the Rye over the last 10 years? I'd love to know that. Any birdies out there who have an extra 15 minutes and a license for book scan, podcast me or email me at podcast at bookriot.com. Um, We're promised this flood of Salinger crap, and I, I don't know. This is the the boy who cried phony here. I don't know what's what's going on with this. Um, maybe this is a foreshock of a you know a flood of Salinger stuff. I wouldn't be surprised, but I also wouldn't be surprised if it's ten years from now we're saying and we're we've promised these next four novels in the glass family saga and we're just never going to get them here's here you go here's here's a you can email me this too (laughs) you can pick either the next game of thrones book or a full jd salinger novel oh which comes first Hmm. that we're not immediately saying martin is a terrible indictment of of martin (laughs) because he's alive Well, but you know the J.D. Salinger books exist. Yes, and they just have exist. To be, they just have to be printed. Matt's doing it. Matt just has to <laughs> press press fire. Yeah, he's got the button. Yeah, so we're told. Yeah, at least right. It's a tough yeah. one, isn't it? Because it feels like it is, tomorrow we could be told about a Salinger book. It does mm-hmm. not feel like tomorrow we could be told about a Martin book. I feel like if it's what's more likely to come out in the next year, you pick Martin. What's the most likely not to come out at all? I think you pick Martin, if that if that's, makes any sense. Yeah, yes. No, I think it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I think that's our show today. Thank you, Rebecca, for dealing for someone else's Morrison feelings uh, a week later and for taking the, the brunt of our shared <sighs> Book Riot podcast um, eulogizing. Sharifa, I'm you guys sorry. did a really great job last week. I'm glad yeah, Sharifa well, was there too. Me too. I'm sorry that we have to have that conversation at all, but I'm glad we got to have it again together. If you would like to take guesses at who my um, Dauphin for the great American no- greatest living American novelist, um, I will listen but not respond at podcast at bookriot.com. <laughs> Rebecca, I'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. <laughs>